Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 93. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. And we're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering each other's movie and pop culture blind spots. We uh, share the movies and television shows that matter to us that uh, the other person hasn't necessarily seen, and we take turns. Each time, one of us gets to choose something and uh, show it to the other person for the first or second time. Yeah. As is the case this time, I think. Yeah. It wasn't my We're not turn. not sure. <laughs> it wasn't my turn to choose. It was my turn to answer for the accusations of why we're watching it for a second time. No, there's no accusations. But um, it's Ashley's choice. <laughs> it was my I'm choice. I'm trying to come around the block to the... To You're the making fun. it sound like we're watching like The Crucible or something. We're not watching The Crucible. I don't want to do a podcast on The Crucible. Nobody wants to do a podcast on The Crucible. I've never read The Crucible. Oh. I may have seen the Winona Ryder movie. I'm not sure. <laughs> Okay. It's kind of like the Demi Moore version of uh, Scarlet Letter. Let's not do that either. Okay. Anyway, tell us what you chose. <laughs> I chose Letter to Three Wives. Say, um, adapted from a book by the director, writer, uh, uh, Joseph Mankiewicz, who also directed and wrote All About Eve. Um, the year from after the, this. Yeah, and from the, the famous Mankiewicz family that uh, still there are Mank- Mankiewicz. <laughs> uh, I think uh, one of his sons used to host uh, TCM until quite recently. So He's probably a grandson. Ben. Ben, ben Mankiewicz. Well, and Herman Mankiewicz wrote Citizen Kane. Yeah, yes. And they made, uh, they made the movie Mank about him. That's right. Okay, is I forgot that that was so that yeah. was about Citizen Kane and not about uh, yeah. Well, see that's all auto. So I'm I'm like Team Joe, Team Joe Megavit Megawitz. <laughs> I choose no sides here because I, I I greatly admire their work, both of them. Uh, so I guess I chose this movie um, because I like the first sort of movie I discovered on my own of like weird Hollywood classic type films is like one day I was flipping channels on like a Saturday in high school and All About Eve was on. And I don't know, you know, if you guys have seen All About Eve, but it doesn't matter really what scene you're in. It it has this like power of like pulling you in. And I ended up watching like all of it um, on TCM that day. Oh, that's definitely yeah. a movie. If it's ever on, I yeah. would just like watch it. <laughs> just watch it. From that point on. <laughs> Um, it's just so, uh, wonderfully, um, soapa, soapy and melodrama, but like the characters are so well-written and they say such clever things. And so I kind of got a little obsessed with, once I started exploring directors, um, Mankiewicz was, Mankiewicz was one of the first ones that I did. Um, and so I found other films that he had written and dire- directed, and this was one of them. Uh, Letter to the Three Wives. Um, I heard good things about it. It had Kirk Douglas in it. And this is how I discovered Linda Darnell, um, who is still like one of the most, I think she's, she has an amazing presence. Um, she's one of the three wives in this film. And um, really, um, I, I just love her in this, but she's really great in some of the other films that I've seen her in too. So um, but she didn't really have the like long career that like you know Betty Davis or Joan Crawford did. So you told me that this movie uh, 
kind of not you started off like <laughs> with the project of seeing more Mankiewicz movies yeah but you ended up wanting to see like everything Linda Darnell yeah I still in. haven't seen everything okay. that she's been in. But, but you said she hasn't she only worked for like, so I was so reading many years. about her some um and my understanding of her from 20 years ago or 15 years ago um is not what so she actually she apparently had been in the studio system since like the late thirties, but like had run afoul of Zanuck at some point, and mm. like he kind of like kept her out of the limelight a lot, um, and would like lend her out to other things. And she was in a bunch of B movies, um, so she was in a bunch of stuff from like the late thirties until this film came out, and I think it was filmed in nineteen forty eight. It came out, it was yeah. released in 49. Yeah. But it was it was still a 20th Century Fox Zanuck movie, so yeah. did she get on his good side again? Because I guess she's she was able of... to, to sweet-talk him somehow. Because um. <laughs> <laughs> she's one of the three. But she was, like, always frustrated, because she is a very beautiful woman. But I also think she's a very talented actress, but often her looks would sort of overshadow her talent as an actress, because she is admittedly a gorgeous person, you know. Um yeah, but she has, uh, well, okay, I, I, I may have seen uh, one of the other movies on your list, Unfaithful yeah. Years, which is also her. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember it very well, but I honestly don't know that I've seen anything other than this film and that film. Her other big one was called Forever Amber that came out just before um, Letter to Three Wives. Um, so that was sort of the three biggest films that she was in, um, and then... You know, unfortunately, she kind of aged out of the the Hollywood system, and you know, she she was kind of an alcoholic in her uh, later years. So, um, and she died quite young. You know, so that was yeah. too often the case for some yeah. of these uh, ingenues. <laughs> um, she's not just a pretty face because, no. at least in this movie, she has a really strong role and she's yeah. very confident and self-assured and like has such a strong presence and a strong stubborn willed character. Yeah. So she's just one of the three and I'm sure we'll be talking about all of them. But, um, so that's, so you chose this for me because <laughs> I, it's one of my, I mean, like, it's funny because like I kind of stumbled across this. It's not one that you would necessarily, I mean, it did win Academy Award for adapted screenplay, but you know, there aren't a lot of people going like, what a one adapted screenplay in 1949. Like there aren't a lot of people that are like, I need to see every adapted screenplay winner, you know? So it kind oh, of well, is it, like it, a lesser It won Best Director that year too. Yeah. Mankiewicz won Best Director okay. for this, I, yeah. I think. And I was thinking that I mistakenly thought this was a follow-up to All About Eve, but it's what he did right before, right before All About Eve blew everything out of the water and won all the awards yeah. and was amazing and is, you know, yeah. <laughs> the landmark <laughs> that it is. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like, it's like everybody knows All About Eve. I don't think as many people are aware. It's like you have to dig a little bit to get to this, you know. I knew the title. I'd probably yeah. seen it in rotation on the T Turner Classic schedule, yeah. but I'd never... Never knew. It wasn't really on my radar. I, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to say it was a Mankiewicz movie. Yeah. In fact, I had to look at his credits because I was like, I know the name. I know yeah. I love All About Eve. It's one of my favorite movies, but I don't think I've actually seen very much of his work at <laughs> yeah. all. I was like going through the credits. He, he I mean, he was extraordinarily prolific. I mean, yeah. he, he directed 22 films, but he wrote like a bunch, 48 movies. Yeah. 
and he produced another 20. I don't think they were all the ones he directed. And the credits that I, that popped out to my eye when I was just scanning the list of those yeah. films is he directed The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, yeah. No Way Out, the early noir, All About Eve, the Julius, Julius Caesar. Mm. I assume and Cleopatra, right? Right. The, yes. The, the Cleopatra, the disaster that we, yes. we now know, with uh, which I've never seen. I've just heard of and seen clips of the yeah. Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton. Um, the Barefoot Contessa, Guys and Dolls. Mm. And um, suddenly last summer, I haven't seen any of these. Yeah, nothing. I mean, I really, I, li- I think I've seen all about Eve. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and this one. And you and haven't I, seen the Ghost of Mrs. Muir? I don't think so. That it's not. I mean, it's I not know my it. favorite film, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I would see anything based yeah. on uh, all about Eve, but. The funny thing is, this uh, movie falls into the category of movies that Ashley tried to show me years ago yeah. and that I fell asleep for. Yeah. So we figured it was fair game to uh, to watch it again for the first time. Yeah. It was really like, it really was for, like for the first time. I remembered like <laughs> nothing. I don't know if I conked out like immediately. I, I don't know if we tried to watch it late at night or if it was one of those sleepy Sunday afternoon, like didn't have a cup of tea and like got all drowsy on the sofa kind of thing. <laughs> But I remembered nothing. Well, it's it's funny. I mean, just like in the in the biography of my life, like in my like my ex husband, he was a he he stayed up late. He was a late stayer upper. So like, I was always in the position where we were starting movies at like nine thirty at night. So I would fall asleep oh, halfway you used through. To be the drowsy I was the viewer. one that would fall asleep because when I fall asleep is somewhere between you know eleven and eleven thirty. Um, but, uh, you're on a slightly earlier schedule, so we would, um, start movies at like eight and about halfway through, <laughs> just, I you can't know. help it. I'm an early person. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you know, um. Now I'm the sleepy, drowsy viewer <laughs> and you're the one who's. I rarely fall asleep in movies now, you know. There's so. gotta be at least 10 movies that have suffered this treatment of, yeah. uh, you trying to show something important to me and I fell asleep. <laughs> I don't think there's there may be one or two yeah. in the opposite direction. No, we have to if you want, if we want to watch something after like eight, we have to go out for it, and then it's fifty fifty whether you're all the way. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> if we go out to a movie, I'm sorry for this tangent, audience, but if we go out to a movie, I'm generally okay at night. Mm-hmm. It's afternoon movies like at Austin Film yeah. Society. Yeah. Put me in a seat for a one thirty or 2 o'clock movie, yeah. it's 50-50. Yeah. I'm either going to like <laughs> completely fall asleep or um, I'll be with it. Yeah. Probably I'm with it if it's something I chose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it's neutral, if it's just a new, new something or other we notice, then who knows? Could go either way. Um, yeah. So that's my excuse for, I don't know if it's an excuse. Yeah. This is my second time around the block, but really actually the first time that I've seen this movie and been at all coherent. Yeah. So it's, it has an interesting structure. I I think it's very interesting. It's, I think not a common structure for the time or maybe not a common structure at all. (laughs) I wish, so I made notes, but I wish I did the homework to kind of think a little bit more about movies with an odd structure like this. Can you kind of fill in the structure a little bit? So it's the most. I mean, it's like one of the most important, uh, yeah, interesting things about the movie. <laughs> we have an like everything starts with that sort of an unidentified female voiceover that's sort of like introducing these characters, and she has this really melodious voice. It's Celeste Holm um, from the the best friend from All About Eve, who has this fantastic like mid Atlantic accent and 
it's just like breathy and seductive and fantastic voiceover acting that she's doing. We never actually see her character. Um, we, so that's interesting yeah. because <laughs> you knew that I had seen this before, yeah. but I remember as it was starting, you're like, oh, we never see her, It's but it's Celeste home. And I don't know if I would have known, like, yeah. I don't know if that would have been a payoff of any kind to not know that we're never going to see her. Yeah. So her... And we we don't find out right away who this person talking is that's introducing all the characters, um, but we later find out it's this sort of ever-present woman who's sort of the representative of the perfect society woman in this small town that's like, you know, Scarborough, New York, or something like that. It's like one of those kind of bedroom communities for New York City kind of thing. Yeah. Although she's like, it's, you know... The town that's 28 minutes from the big city is how she says it. Oh, and but, they make a thing about how it's a small town with the main street and everything. Yeah. It's not like a big yeah. city. So, But it's like the, you know, the first of the American suburbs set up after the, you know, among the first of the American suburbs set up after this, the um, World War II. And just down the street, Rock yeah. Hudson lives uh, and, yeah. is, and is about to undergo his second <laughs> treatment, i.e. Uh, see last week's episode. So it looks a lo- yeah, it looks a lot like um, the same neighborhood. I, I suspect it's the same neighborhood in Pasadena that they did the filming in. Um, it's basically yeah. Don, Don Draper's neighborhood. Yeah, that, that type it's of just thing. that same street uh, in, in Pasadena for the actual filming. Um, but uh, Celeste Holmes voiceover is the character of Addie Ross, who is this, you know, ideal, perfect woman who has connections to each of the people in the story. Um, and the three wives are, um, uh, Anne Southern, um, she plays Rita, who plays Rita, who is a, she's writing for the radio. She's a career woman. Um, her husband is Kirk Douglas, who is a school teacher mm-hmm. who gets chided for his non-manly profession of being a high school teacher um, throughout the mo- <laughs> movie. I was like, who, who knew? Um, then we have Brad, who I don't know what Brad does. He does something in the city. Um, he he's, has money. He's just a city yeah. man. He probably yeah. commutes and, you know. And he has a wife that he brought back with him. They worked together in the Navy during the war, and they got married. Debbie. Her name's Debbie. And And she's played by Jean Crane. Jean Crane. And then we have uh, Linda Darnell. um, uh, She plays Laura May. Laura May. And um, she is married, sort of new money. A guy who owns the, like, uh, it's like... um, like Can a he, Sears or something yeah, like that. Yeah, he owns like a chain of... Um, Department stores. Yeah, like appliance stores yeah. or something so, like I that. So, I mean, like, he is obviously new money, and Laura's, you He's know, also much older than yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. They say 15 years, I think. Yeah, but, he, he looks but like Paul, 20 years old. played by Paul Douglas, and he looks <laughs> 20 to 30 years older <laughs> than her, maybe. He might be 35, Although, just with all what? the smoking and drinking. Men in those ages look yeah. a hell of a lot older yeah. at 40 than... They do now most of the time. So I actually don't know how old. Well, he this was. is as young as I've ever seen Kirk Douglas. So, yeah. you know, not related. Paul yeah. Douglas and Kirk Douglas, <laughs> and this is Paul Douglas's first film, I think. Yeah. So. And Laura May um, is, you know, she's she, you know, admits to it. She's from the wrong side of the tracks, from an Irish family. Her mom, uh, I forget what her mom does, but her mom's best friend is Sadie, um, who who's Thelma Ritter. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Who we love. Have we, I don't know if we've ever, like, 
<laughs> talked about Thelma Ritter on this yeah. show because I'm not sure we've ever done any of her movies, but she is one of the national treasures yeah. of the American Hollywood classic She's movie. She's so good. We love her so much. <laughs> Pick up on South Street, Rear Window, all all about Eve. All about Eve. And she's just so she plays amazing. the the housekeeper for um for Rita's family, Rita and Kirk Douglas's family. Um, but she's also best friends to Laura May's mother, um, and they. I just love this movie has so much character because it goes into the sort of backstories of all the different people in the film. So we get to see their home and private lives in addition to how they interact with each other. And it's just really interesting like that. And especially Laura May's family where we get to meet like her sassy mother and Thelma Ritter also being sassy. And then like her smart, uh, smart ass kid sister, kid babe. sister, babe. Yeah. So Georgiana, <laughs> Um, I, I just think that this is a, a, a very unique film in that it, it sort of goes into that and it looks at women, womanhood and how womanhood was changing and like how the expectations of women were changing in the sort of post-war era. Um, because like each of the women, each of the three wives kind of are, none of them are the like ideal you would think of, of a housewife of the, you know, late forties into early fifties. They all have different things that they're doing, even though they live in this very traditional sort of suburban environment, you know. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the original novel the, a letter to six wives or five wives? I don't know. I don't. I there were more wives. <laughs> there were more. That, that would be too, mo- too there much were considerably for one more movie. wives. <laughs> yes. And they had it down to... <laughs> I don't know if they did a treatment of five wives, but at some point... Pretty close to before they went into production, they had it down to four wives. Okay, four wives. And they even cast Ann Baxter as, oh, wow. as the other wife. That's the one that's not into her husband very much. <laughs> and then Zanuck and and the production folks, the, the studio, was like, nope, this is diluting it too much. There's too many. Get, lose a wife. Lose yeah. another wife. Lose so a wife. they wrote and Baxter out and shuffled <laughs> things around. And I don't think any of that backstories or the actual women and their stories with their, the, the marriages are the same as they are in the novel from what yeah. I've read. But Interesting. Um, yeah. Anyway, I hadn't read on that. The, back stuff. So back up though. Let's uh, the, what is this letter? We need the, we need the premise. So the letter is from Addie, Addie Ross, uh, the disembodied voice of Celeste Holm. Um, to the omniscient disembodied yes, voice of Celeste voice of, um Because she's narrating all of these scenes that she's not in or she's wasn't present in, for. Yeah, where they're talking about her. Mm-hmm. And it's it's clear that the women don't really like Addie Ross. The, their men in their life are kind of taken with her. They like her. They think she's classy. Um, like an epitome of womanhood and class and grace and all that stuff. Well, they stuff. all grew up with her. Yeah. The, or and or, and or dated her. Yeah. She's like an old flame slash childhood friend yeah. slash ideal. Yeah. Slash the one that got away or, or something. Yeah. And the one who's always kind of there. You get the sense. She's also a divorcee, which is, oh, is like, she? yeah. Okay. So like, cause I don't think her name was her last, she's Mrs. Ross, but she, okay. So that's the other thing is she's dangerous because she's a divorcee. But she's on the outskirts yeah. and you get the sense that she's kind of flirting in some way with all three of those mm. men or at least, or I don't know if it's, 
I don't know if it's two ways for everybody yeah. or what. But, <laughs> but she. So, so the women are all kind of something. a little skeptical of Addie anyway, but they are going on the worst thing ever, which is like a charity picnic for the disadvantaged children of of the town. Which entails putting like a hundred children on a ferry boat. Yeah. And then having a big weenie roast picnic with yeah, them and, and they lots seem of outdoor to be like, games. There's only four adults and like a hundred children, which is not a good ratio. <laughs> and so you basically have these like society women types, yeah. you know, our cast of characters as so, the chaperones yeah. slash people running it. So as they're getting on the ferry, a delivery boy rides up on a bicycle. Like, yeah, because in the 50s, they would track you, you just... down to a ferry and, and run your, your telegram to you, your letter to you. So they open the letter, and it's a letter from Addie Ross that says, you know, I'm going to miss you. It's been, like, really sarcastic, passive-aggressive, like, it was so great being amongst you. You know, I'll, I'll miss you so much, uh, and I'm happy that I'm taking a souvenir away with me, and it's one of your husbands. You know, so that's the... <laughs> and then there's this great moment where they're standing on the, the ramp to the ferry, and they're all looking at the phone booth that's, like, right next to the boat dock, um, and then they're like, we need to go. And so they get on the boat and aren't able to call home. And so. Okay, that's funny because I, 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 I looked at you and said, what are they staring at? What's, it's a why phone are they booth. All, like, oh, the phone booth. Oh, they want to call home and see if their husband. Yeah. Oh, and we forgot to mention that that morning things were off in their husband's routine yeah. that kind of set their so minds. Brad in- was going to have to stay in the city, maybe. And he was, and she kept saying he, he needed to phone her to yeah. say whether he was coming home or not. Yeah. But he kept saying he didn't think he was going to make it out to their club due that night. It's the country club dance, dinner dance, the first one of the, the season. First, the first May, right? The May first, first Saturday in May. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> he didn't think he was going to make it back. He might call. You definitely better call. So that's weird. Yeah. And then you have Kirk Douglas heads off on a Saturday not to go fishing. Apparently, he goes fishing every Saturday. Every every first Saturday in May, he goes but fishing. But what did he go out wearing? He wore his blue suit. His on blue a surge Saturday, suit. His, on blue a, surge his best suit. blue suit on a Saturday. So what's that about? No one knows. No one knows what that's And he about. had no explanation. We actually don't know what happened with the... Uh, Laura May's husband. Yeah, I have a blank. I drew a blank. I don't I think they to... inter- even so introduced what he was ha- up to. I think we just have um, Debbie picking everyone up in her car. Yeah. And she sees, um, I think she sees Kirk Douglas leave yeah. in his suit. And so she's like, oh, what's he wearing a suit about? And we're like, oh, we're not talking. We got into a spat this morning yeah. anyway. <laughs> so who knows? Well, and it's to be noted that, like, Rita and Kirk have been together since high school. They've just known each other and dated okay. all through. So, like, this is a very long-standing relationship that they have. Whereas, like, um, uh, so Brad and Debbie... Debbie and Brad are a new couple. Pretty new, within the past two years or yeah. three years. And then it's not clear how long Laura May and Porter have been together, but... No. Not as long as... as. Uh, but we've set up the yeah. question of the movie. <laughs> the letter comes, yeah. I've run off with one of your husbands. Oh, and now you're on a boat and you can't do anything about this and you'll just have to wonder. Yeah. So the movie is them wondering. Yeah, exactly. And trying to ruminate and figure out if it's them yeah. and their husband. So then basically you get like this anthology sort of film of three flashback stories showing... Like a a period of time in each of those relationships. Yeah. 
where we get to kind of judge alongside them whether, you know, is this is this the marriage that was the most in trouble or the yeah. husband that was most likely to, you know, what was their interaction with Addie Ross? How did she yeah. affect their relationship? So that's the weird structure. Yeah. Is you get basically like three short stories now. You get mm-hmm. a, a section on each of those marriages before ever coming back to resolving the question of what the hell did actually happen. Yeah. <laughs> So shall we talk about those sto- the their marriages yeah. and the stories that we so, see? Yeah, our first one is um, is Debbie and Brad, and um, they seem like they've just moved back to town after the Navy in this. So like she hasn't even had time to like go shopping for a new wardrobe as a newlywed. Um, Isn't she meeting them for the first time? She's meeting his friends for the first time. This is literally when he brought her back. This is like a nightmare scenario for me. Like, don't ever do this. I mean, like, we've been married at four years now, but... We're going out to a fancy dinner party with all of my best friends. And you don't and have time to never, shop for new you've clothes. You've never met them before. <laughs> you don't have time to shop. You don't know what they're like. And you grew up on a farm and just got out of um, the Navy. The Navy, yeah. And you, you, uh, you, you know... So this story really, my take on it is it's all about her insecurity yeah. of feeling like she's not sophisticated enough yeah. to fit in with the, his, like, country his, club his best set. friends, his yeah. country club set, and the people he who are most important to him in the world. Yeah. So um, she doesn't handle it in a very good way. No. She has a considerable she number like, of all the martinis. martinis. She drinks all the martinis. <laughs> and I think she says that she doesn't usually drink at all. Like, yeah. Doesn't she say she drank more... More that night than she like had that, in her whole life In that half together. hour that she's getting ready in, yeah. than in her whole life. <laughs> put together. Uh, so, yeah, she has a mail-order dress that she got four years ago, and she was like, even then it wasn't the... No, and it's got the weird flowers pinned yeah, in the front. Yeah, it's got flounces in weird places and giant flowers, and it does look like it's a dress that you might have ordered from, like, Sears and Roebuck, you know... It's not during a dinner, the war, it's you know, kind of. <laughs> it's not a club dinner party sort of dress. No, but it's the only thing she has. Um, so um, she meets uh, Rita, and they're really nice to her. They're really great. Uh, so Rita comes upstairs Rita's and tries really to help sweet her with out. Her. Yeah. Rita's played by Ann Southern. Yeah, although she does encourage her to drink more, which maybe she just doesn't realize how much she I don't she think she realized how... Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> she didn't realize that she had already had three before she walked in. <laughs> we're like, we had had a cocktail, and so we were shouting at the screen not to drink anymore. Um, she yeah. did not listen to us. And so, like, at the actual dinner party, um, at the dinner dance... Like, she keeps drinking. There's wine on the table. She has champagne. It's one of those, like, supper club kind of places, right? With dancing and dinner. Well, I think it's the country club, so they have... Oh, it's... Okay. So they have, like, they're having dinner, and then there's also dancing. So it's like a social for the upper crust set. So the thing is, is none of those other couples seem to be actually judging her, and they seem (laughs) to be quite welcoming of her. Especially Rita and Kirk Douglas, whatever his name is, George. So Porter is self-absorbed as normal. So is Laura May, actually. Porter and Laura May are always kind of in their sort of kind of sniping and bickering zone. You just get the sense that that's their deal. That's their, their, they make little snide remarks to each other. They're, something's not right. Yeah. (laughs) We find out more later on. We we do. We find, so, um, she drinks a whole lot, um, 
Brad takes her out on the dance floor and, um, we've forgotten to mention at some point she tried to cut the flower off the front of her dress. But you shouldn't do that when you're tipsy. When you're drunk. And she chopped off a big hole into the middle of her dress, which they pinned back on. Um, but when she's out dancing with Brad on the dance floor, um, it gets ripped off again. And so she's standing there with a big hole in her dress, drunk. She like runs off to the bathroom. <laughs> it's the most embarrassing thing ever to ever happen. So my question for you is, why is this the incident that she flashes back on that connects to this insecurity about Addie Ross and her husband? Well, what, where does Addie Ross figure into this story? I don't even remember. So there's... Um, a fl- in the, At the very beginning of the movie, we open with Brad and Debbie, and they're having breakfast, and right. she reveals that Brad has suggested that she buy a dress that he found in a Vogue magazine um, on the train. And so she has bought the dress, um, but I guess through her woman's uh, sort of network of women has discovered that the same dress that she's bought to wear to this social this evening um, is the same dress that Addie Ross wore to a barbecue like two weeks ago or something. So is she trying to quiz him and find out whether it's just because you saw this in a Vogue magazine or you just want me to wear the thing that Addie Ross She's sensitive about it and like I think it's mentioned at some point that Brad and Addie broke, uh, I mean uh, you know, grew up together and everybody thought that they would end up together you know, it's like sort of been so so she she feels like embarrassed in front of the same set that and and she probably feels like she's the consolation prize or that he would really be happier with the great Addie Ross. Well and at some point Addie who's not there, we don't ever see her has sent over a bottle of champagne to the table of her friends and Brad's like, oh Addie, always the right thing at the right time, you know Don't you, okay (laughs) Don't you just love movies where everybody talks about a certain character yeah. <laughs> forever and ever and like you never see them yeah. or like you don't it's like Degrassi <laughs> Heather Sinclair mm-hmm. all right um this is where I'm gonna say the only sentence in my life that involves Orson Welles and Holly J Sinclair or <laughs> Heather Sinclair from Degrassi um it, it reminds me of uh the third man okay. and how for the first 45 minutes or hour of the movie everybody's talking about harry lime and what a badass harry lime is and harry lime this and harry lime that and you don't you're just waiting to see harry lime. finally you do actually get harry lime you get the great orson wells emerging from the shadows with the kitten at his feet and all that but like it's so much more interesting that everybody's talking about harry lime yeah. <laughs> for like an hour and you're like oh my god god damn it i want to see who this harry lime is we never get to see so you never get to see her but the you always have the suggestion of her presence she's just She's at a booth out of out yeah. of the shot somewhere. She's you know? out smoking. They, they've on the seen patio. her. They've spotted yeah. her. It's yeah. not like she's the invisible woman. Yeah. She is to us, <laughs> but she's there, present in the scene mm-hmm. somewhere off off yeah. off sides. <laughs> so she just. I, I think. I think with Brad, it's more that she thinks that he's like. He has this like history with her, and that she's this interlo- this unsophisticated interloper that. Um, but, like, I don't know. I mean, as far as, like, healthy marriages go, I don't think that Debbie and Brad have the healthiest marriage in the thing. So, like, I think, like, there's, like, enough there to suggest that that might be the one, you know. It's funny because as we're talking about this, I'm remembering how good the scenes are with 
her and the dress and mm. drinking a little too much and feeling insecure. But when I was thinking, when I was trying to remember the stories this morning, mm. morning, that's like the one I couldn't really bring to yeah. mind. It didn't seem as strong as the other stories to me. She just doesn't. I mean, she's very of like if you've ever seen Rebecca, she's kind of like the Rebecca. Um, you know, she's the the second wife, the the one in Rebecca's shadow kind of thing. The sort of like, I'm not sure about yeah. the casting too, because yeah. I, I don't think Jeffrey Lynn as Brad is all that interesting no. either. I mean, yeah. you've got him against Kirk Douglas and Paul Douglas, yeah. who are very strong personalities <laughs> in their own way, and no. he's kind of almost just a handsome, forgettable yeah. guy. Well, I mean, and maybe that's what like Paul is like. Uh, Every man. Yeah, uh, Brad is kind of like a boring dude who just wants like. You know, but she just wants her boring dude in in, yeah, in her home you life. You know, that's yeah. that's fine. You know, um, but I don't know. There's some something about their interactions just aren't as healthy or robust as the other two. You know, not that I mean, like. Ooh, I don't know if the other ones are always healthy. I know they are robust. Yeah, yeah, robust. I guess is a better term for it. So the other like, ones have a certain emotional drama to them. Yeah. I mean, to the actual couple. There's not a whole lot of going on. There's not a whole lot of emotion of any kind in, in this first yeah. couple. I don't know if it's something in the writing or the acting or if, or if, or if really it just needs to be the first one and we move, we get, cons- we get more, we in get depth. more as we proceed. I, I, I feel like the other act, the other couples are more of the star of it, yeah. you know, um, you have to have at least three wives for this to work, I think. Well, and I forgot <laughs> to mention that, like, in the transition to these, like, sort of wanderings or dream flashback things, yeah. they have these the weird odd sonic uh, things. So, like, the first one is when she's thinking back to the, to the first time she went to a dinner dance. Um, she's on the boat and you can hear the sort of chug, chug, chug of the steam engine on the boat. Is that when she's thinking, is and it so, Brad? Yeah. And so you get this is like weird auto tuned, like it sounds like somebody's speaking through like a, a, a fan. Like, yeah. is it Brad? Is it Brad? You know, kind of like, like kind they, of coming out of the sound of yeah. the steam engine. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's a they very pick interesting up an, an environmental sound yeah. and then they add her her interior <laughs> monologue to it so no. the the device actually or the the object actually seems to be talking yeah is it brad is it yeah brad? it sounds like a vocoder it's fascinating it is some kind of early vocoder yeah <laughs> i don't know enough about these things yeah but you get that for each one right because yeah. you also the oh because the next one you have is uh rita and george mm. the the tv writer and the high school uh, teacher yeah. with uh, Kirk Douglas and she has the isn't hers I don't know what the object is it was one of them is a dripping so faucet. hers is weird because it's not um, like a, an environmental sound it's because she's thinking back to a time where her husband is playing like Schubert or Brahms or something oh. and so the tune of hers is like the Brahms so it's oh, okay. like you know, why didn't George, why go, didn't fishing? George go fishing? Why and did he why wear his blue suit? blue suit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's more because, like, uh, you know, we. So, yeah, Kirk Douglas is kind of a, like, intellectual snob in this, which is, like, highly amusing in the in the 
sort of constraints that they put him in for this particular thing. Because he thinks, like, his wife's job, which is essentially, like, paying their bills, um, you know, he thinks that it's ridiculous and, and capitalist and, like, against everything that's good and holy in this world. Uh. <laughs> okay, so I think he's dealing with a feeling of emasculation yeah. or something like that. But I don't think they actually played that too, like, yeah. big. Like, it doesn't no. seem... It seems like... He's, he's got a good sense of humor actually, about it. Yeah. <laughs> I actually... Feel, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel the best about this couple. Yeah, I do too. Like, I think I they actually have the best relationship. Like they really love each other, and yeah. even though that might bother him that his wife is basically the breadwinner, yeah. I think that's the issue, is, yeah. you know, he's a high school teacher, and she's making a lot of money writing yeah. for national radio. Um, and it bugs him, but it doesn't seem like it bugs him that much. I mean, no. it seem, it's not something that he's resentful about full-time or anything. Yeah. He actually, they actually seem to quite well, love each other. Well, I think it's because he has, he, he has a lot of satisfaction in his work. He really enjoys being a high school teacher. It's not like it's something he fell into. It's no, something that he chose. He feels like it's a, a vocation for him. Yeah, you know, there's nothing he'd rather do. Yeah. <laughs> this is, he's living his dream. You know, and, and like if it's... I think he's happy, like, he likes his wife a lot and... If it's important for him, for them to move up in the world, and he wants to be a high school teacher, then her taking on this additional job is like allowing her to do what she wants while making sure that they're all, you know, fulfilled in in what they want to do with their lives, you know. So, yeah, I think this is probably the healthiest couple as far as as far as it goes. <laughs> I think what he's what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing from him. <laughs> that he's having more of a problem with is the workaholic sort of thing. Yeah. And the fact that she feels obligated to work overnight, you know, overnight on a moment's notice to rewrite something because she gets a phone call Yeah, and she's got to satisfy. Like he's, he's like, no, you know, that's too much. Yeah. Where are we in all of this? Um, you shouldn't have to be at their beck and call. And then also this idea of like, that idea of, of moving up and maintaining the appearance. Yeah. Of, uh, so he doesn't want to keep up with the Joneses so the, necessarily. Yeah. So the story that we get for them is the night they're going to have a dinner. They're having a dinner party for basically her, her employers. Yeah. Right. Two of the, yeah, they're her, her bosses, her probably. bosses, a couple, Mr. And Mrs. Uh, Manley. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too. It's because funny that in their name this, is Manly. <laughs> in this couple, it does seem like Mrs. Manly is the one in charge as well, you know, which is Isn't cool. Isn't it funny that her name is Manly? Yeah. <laughs> I just noticed that now, because it's spelled M-A-N-L-E-I-G. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, she has, like, their their housekeeper, Sadie, like... So this is Sadie her, Thelma Ritter, who yeah, we were talking Yeah, Thelma who's fantastic in this, but she's, like... She's taught Sadie a whole new vocabulary for, like, she's supposed to say dinner is served. She's not supposed to say soup's on. <laughs> soup's on. Um, she buys uh, Sadie a new, like, French-style housekeeper's outfit with, like, the black and, and the... little cap. And yeah, she really apron. does not want to wear she it. She doesn't want to wear it. <laughs> and just this once. Just this she, once. She buys, so like, a, a screen to separate the dining room from the living room. And they're going to have, know. like, duck or something. Yeah. <laughs> And, like, you know, she has to buy, like, all new, like, it's all the cigarette boxes have to be full of cigarettes and all the candy has and to be Sadie full. And Sadie and George, Kirk Douglas, yeah. um, are like, why do we have to pretend to be this thing that we're not, yeah. you know? And she's like, oh, it's so important, you know. 
So that's what they expect. And I get the idea that this is like the Friday night before the previous day. Like yeah, this April, seems closer. April thirtieth. It was the previous night um, before. Oh, really? Is it that that's? Yeah. Okay. I yeah, it's, I think it's the very because like the, get, the way get it gets resolved at the end, it sounds like this was just yesterday that this oh, okay. happened. Um, so it turns out during the course of all this like planning for this dinner party that Rita has completely forgotten that it's her husband's birthday, and the reason she knows that she forgot that her, it's her husband's birthday is Addie Ross sends over. Um, a copy. Do you remember the music that? It's Brahms. Brahms. She it's a rare her... Brahms album recorded in Germany or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and he's just like over the moon. He's so excited about it. And she writes, it has a very specific note in it that says, "If music be the food of love, play on." Is the quote, which is um, from Twelfth Night. Oh, that's where. You, okay, yeah. I see where I see what you mean. Yeah. So. Um, so like, she feels awful that she's forgotten her birth, her husband's birthday. Um, you know, and she like comes in as like Sadie by the cha- by chance did you make a layer cake for dessert? And Sadie's like, you know that we're making Sherry's Jubilee, you know. <laughs> but she doesn't pretend with George. She's like, yeah. oh my god, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Like you must, you know. And yeah. He's like, that's fine. I know you've got a lot on your plate right now. Yeah. It's okay. But he's also really happy that he got this the- gift. He immediately goes and puts it on the... Um, he puts it on and the dinner guests have to listen to it when the Manleys come. Well, and what's... Another thing that's interesting to me is they have, like... It's a beautiful um, set-in-a-cabinet um, phonograph player. Yeah. But he says that it was made by one of his students. Like, it's yeah. not one of ones they bought at, like, you know, a department store or anything like that. It's one that one of his students put together from them, which suggests that until recently, they probably couldn't afford to buy pieces of furniture like that. And the man, the Mrs. Manley makes a rude comment about it. Not, you know, not being a brand name one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah, the Manleys get there and, and she's kind of snobby. Um, they spend all this time on this nice dinner and she doesn't want to sit and eat dinner at the table. She wants to eat in, in the living room while they're listening to like the radio soap operas. Yeah, so supposedly they're really <laughs> snobby and, and have to be catered to, but yeah. they just want to sit there with napkins and plates on their lap and listen to stupid radio yeah. shows. I guess, is it the show that... Um, Brenda Brown is the first one. Girl girl journalist or something like that. I guess like they're that. listening to the shows that they sponsor or that they produce. And the other one is like something gray, Amelia Gray or something like that. Um, uh, registered Nurse is the other one that they're listening to. <laughs> Which has a great fade because they start with the yeah, with the, the Brenda Brown and then they fade on the end of uh, uh, whatever the registered nurse one is, something gray. Um, and like everybody's obviously kind of irritated that they've spent the whole evening listening to uh, everybody looks bored radio dramas. To tears. They've ha- they have Porter and Laura May over as well. So it's like a dinner party with everybody just like sitting in the living room listening to the radio. Oh yeah, and the only people drinking are <laughs> Porter and George. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right cuz they're teetotalers. The Yeah. They the, never touch it. The Manleys are so um it doesn't go very well and then like it's clear that Rita throughout the evening has been trying to sort of get um George to to talk about his writing skills or something to the Manleys 
And with the idea, I guess, that she would want her husband to start writing for radio instead of... She's been setting this up because yeah. there's a reference to it earlier when she's in the kitchen with Sadie yeah. that she's setting up something for him. So, like, at the end of the evening, when he's, like, completely exhausted and overwhelmed, um, and a little bit drunk at that point, probably, <laughs> um, uh, she, like, pointedly asked him a question about, like, Brenda Brown or or one of the terrible um, soap operas that they've just listened to. And he savagely... He just goes de- off. Yeah. <laughs> he savagely denounces the, like, stupid... Just the whole idea of these radio programs, which yeah. is the bread and butter of the house. It's yeah. what the Manleys do. And he's like, it's like making everybody lowbrow and yeah. low, like, it's a loss <laughs> of intelligence and it's just so stupid. It was probably not the right thing to say to your wife's employers. Well, and to, to his credit, he tried not to. He said, I really don't want to answer this question. And they kept prodding at him to... Surely you have some thoughts about so, this. But luckily, you know, Mrs. Manley doesn't blame Rita. So Rita doesn't get fired for the actions of her husband. But um, but this was like a sneak job interview in a yeah. way that he didn't know about. Yeah. She was trying to set him up for a position writing for, for them as well. So that's when they or, have the or editing dis- for yeah. them, I think they said. They have a discussion where he makes it pretty clear that, you know, he's not interested. They have a pretty bad fight, you know, which... Well, because she insinuates that he doesn't have any ambition and <laughs> yeah. he's just content to, be do, to being a teacher. Yeah. And he's like, this is all I want to do. This is this so, is And that's, that's where we get the, like, we're not talking. Because mm-hmm. that fight happened just the night before um, when she gets picked up you for the picnic. You also have the symbolic... Uh, gesture of mrs manley accidentally breaking the, oh, the record yeah. the bronze awful. record yeah so an hour after he gets <laughs> this present from Addie ross the, the, the record yeah uh, it's broken somehow I, I didn't i missed i don't know why it's into i don't know how it broke somehow she broke it when she yeah. was over there trying to switch it off and turn on the radio you know so he was he was very patient throughout all of that and just um when finally prodded kind of exploded but um so, so that's why she thinks that it might be her husband that ran off with Addie Ross. Yeah, like she pushed him away. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Trying to force him to be something he's not. He's not, yeah. So then we get to the last one, who is Laura May. And, like, we during this, we kind of get a conversation between the different women where they're kind of, like, feeling each other out to see, like, yeah. who they think it might be. And you get little glimpses of this terrible picnic with the children running around yeah. the whole time that they have to deal with. A giant when, weenie roast. <laughs> it's one of those, it's like something in real life, you know, when something really major is going on and you're just stuck in the most inane situation yeah. that you have to get through. <laughs> And you're completely helpless and nothing, the thing around you doesn't matter at all, but you have to get through it before yeah. you can deal with what you really need to deal with. It's done pretty well. So it seems like there should be more society ladies at this particular thing. Maybe there are and we just aren't seeing them. Um. There is just a frightening <laughs> amount of children running around, especially in that shot that we have of them in the field. But yeah. Playing the, it's, I don't know if it's a process shot or something, but it looks like there's a million kids back there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we get a flashback to Laura May before they were married. And this is your girl. This is Linda Darnell. Yeah, she's, and she just like, so she's, um, she's a store clerk girl. She works in Porter's store and it's clear that Porter, who's recently divorced, he's just making his way around all the, the stock girls. He's just like dating all of them. And Laura May has she has very specific goals in mind. She doesn't want to be like a hit it and quit it kind of 
thing. Um, she she's not you know giving away the milk for free to you know to use a tired no, saying. No, he's absolutely <laughs> doing the whole me yeah. too kind of like. <laughs> Let's have dinner and talk about your possibilities for advancement. Yes, yeah, like, exactly. That's the pretense. That's why he brings them, and he buys her a drink of like cream de menthe, which and it's immediately is, leaning all over her yeah. and like kind of leering in her face, smiling and like yeah, yeah, she knows why she's there. Well, and then, but I mean, it's not just him doing this because Laura May, like all the rest of the movie, she's had this very like sassy kind of argumentative tone in her voice the whole time like every every interaction is this sort of like sarcastic sassy way that she's responding to like the whole situation everything like she's wise to everything and so like in this scenes with Porter she's like talking in this very like upper crest high like lofty type voice like oh thank you kind of thing um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they do a really good job of showing her in her two environments yeah. of being with with her her mom and her sister and yeah. Thelma Ritter in the kitchen waiting for him to come and being like, what do you mean? You know, all that kind of yeah. stuff. And then to him being with him. And then the weird in-between times when yeah. he's with them yeah. picking her up or whatever and she's talking in a way that her family's reacting to. Like, yeah, what? like what? what's the thank, princess thank talking you, about? Thank you, mother dear. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Would you kindly get the... So, I mean... So yeah, she, you know, she's, she's pretty clear about like, she's like he, the first night after they've gone and gotten a drink and had dinner, he like drives out to a parking, you know, a place where people go to park and like, she, she won't kiss him. They just have a conversation and then like he drops her off at home. Um, And then we have the, like all the great scenes at her house because her house is right by the railroad tracks. So like... Every time a train goes by, like, the whole house shakes. So everybody stops everything they're doing and just waits while everything is vibrating. It's the, it's, this it's a really good This happens, like, bit. four times in the <laughs> movie. And they just stop in mid-sentence while the train goes by. Yeah. Everything is rattling. The whole yeah. house is shaking. The fridge door opens every yeah. single time. And they just wait for it to end. And then they close the fridge door yeah. and resume their conversation. Yeah. And it's just like, you know this happens every 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Even more in the mornings, I'm sure. <laughs> so it's funny when you say that they're on the wrong side of the tracks. It's like they're literally on the tracks. On the tracks, yeah. Um, so, you know, and the scenes, like, they just, like, it's just, like, more and more scenes of, like, her going out with him. And the sort of, like, how he's trying to impress her changes every time. So, like, first he takes her out to dinner. The second time I think he takes her to his home and shows off his home and... You know, and, you know, still she she's giving him just enough, you know, so like I think the first time but he like, always it always ends with him very frustrated in yeah. the car at the end of the night where yeah. she's just leaving him in the car <laughs> and he's like, eh. I think so. I think the first time is the time that she like um, he gets out of the she he's he's clearly just going to drop her off and telling her to get out of the car, yeah. but she won't get out of the car till he comes around and opens the car door yeah. for her. Um, so while he's going around to open the car, she like rips her stocking um and then, like, shows it to him, like, oh, look at my stocking. Oh, must have caught it, snagged it at the, yeah. at the restaurant somewhere <laughs> on the table. So, and then the second time, like, um, she, I think, like, he's he brings her some replacement stockings, takes her to his house. She's still not having anything. Um, so, like, he drops her off. And this time he doesn't even get out. He just sort of, like, reaches over and 
throws the door open. So then he's about to drive off and she's like, oh, I forgot something. She left her nylons in the back. So she has to reach over the back of the seat and grab the nylons. And then she reaches over and kisses him. So that's the next sort of thing. So things escalate slightly. (laughs) Yeah, slightly. (laughs) Um, He drives away pretty confused, though. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, like, I I guess the point they're trying to make is that she knows what she's doing. She's trying to attract a man of wealth and that he's aware of the situation, but is overwhelmed by his feelings, so to speak. Oh, and we <laughs> forgot the Addie Ross connection yes. of when she's at the time she's at his house. She sees, he has a picture of Addie Ross on his piano. Yeah. And I think she suggests that she would like to someday be the picture. On yeah. The piano. She's pretty clear that she wants to get married. She doesn't want to just be somebody's like, side piece she wants to be like the main event and she says it outright yeah. because at, because when it really comes out on the table he's like i don't want to get married again yeah, i've been married before yeah, i don't want that divorcer. i'm an independent guy i want to come and go as i please i don't need that again well that one's weird too because like he has a giant <clears throat> picture of addy ross on his piano that she gave him for christmas which is a weird gift Everybody he has a cares, giant yeah. silver but you know Laura May wants to be the woman in the silver picture on the, on the, and I actually think like going back to the very first scene in the movie, like the very first way that, um, Rita and Kirk Douglas are introduced to Debbie is that there's a picture of her in her Navy uniform on the piano. Yeah. Everyone has, uh, baby grand pianos in this film. Oh yes, of course. Everybody had a piano. (laughs) My family had a piano. Um, so anyway, yeah. So it, I guess it finally, um, on New Year's Eve, Porter shows up at Laura May's house and it's like, fine, let's get married. And I'm crazy about you. Let's get married. Yeah, but kind of gruff. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not a very romantic thing. Um, so that kind of sets up their like relationship. It's like she wore him down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, it is interesting that he's not like a sophisticated rich man. No, no. He you, he's like new money. He's yeah. like, you know, made his way up. He like his businesses turned it into a chain and everything. He's not all that sophisticated. He just has the wallet and like he can afford yeah. to take her out. He can give her things. Yeah. And um I th- at some point he suggests that she's sort of gold digging him mm-hmm. and then she freaks out on him and is like I'm not the one who asked me out I'm not the one who started yeah. this you chose me you know yeah. you you set this in motion so, I wasn't I mean, looking for you throughout the movie you get the idea that neither of them are able to be emotionally vulnerable with the other one no. you know is the sort of setup for this is like this one feels the most like some kind of transaction yeah yeah which I mean like and on the surface it is but I mean, like, I guess the idea is that there's more to that than, than, so, I mean, like, it kind of sets it up, like, like, there, theirs is the marriage that's in the most danger of him, you know, because he's been married before, and their relationship is entire transactional, and all of that sort, sort of thing, you know, so that's, that's where we are with, with Laura May when they... Yeah, and you definitely get the sense she just wants to move up and have the house and be in the picture frame and, like, yeah. have the dresses and the lifestyle. And, you know, it happens to be you, Porter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one who can give this to me. You're the one I've got on the line. Uh, so then we, you know, they come back from the terrible, the worst trip in the world. 
<laughs> with 800,000 children. Um, and now you know it's just a matter of time before they go home and discover which one of them yeah. has a missing partner who is the one who ran off with Addie Ross. So and I guess we have a mirror of the first scene, which is they show up at Debbie and Brad's house and uh, to pick up Debbie. And Debbie says, well, Brad's not going to make it. She's gotten a, a letter from her, you know, from, I guess, I the housekeeper. She, I think that, the house, he phoned and the yeah. housekeeper got the message that he's not coming home that night. Yeah. But you know what? He said in the beginning that he might not make it home that he night. He did. That's right. They um, had that whole thing where he's like, I'm going to be out late. I don't know if I'm going to make it back. Phone me. So he phoned. He said he's not going to be back. So And immediately, like, so I get the idea that we also get a, before that, I think we get a picture of Rita coming home and her husband's laying on the couch listening to music. He explains to her the reason he was wearing the blue suit is because he's directing, they asked him to direct Twelfth Night at the high school. Yeah. And he's super excited about it. And Addie Ross knew about it. And that's why she sent the note that said. And he just wanted to put on a suit for his first day ever in the role of director for the first rehearsal. And that just made him feel good as he was going off to do this thing that he really wanted to do. Yeah. That's it. Nothing else going on. So they're they're happy. Um, But I guess she must have told him at some point about the letter that Addie Ross sent. Because as soon as they hear that Brad is not there, then they're kind of, both of them are kind of like, "Mm," you know. um, And we're clearly supposed to go, oh, it's Brad. It's Brad. Yeah. Um, So they get to the dinner dance. And indeed, both Laura May and Porter are there at the dinner dance, sniping as usual, you know. uh, When we we cut back to um, Laura May and her mom back at the house, (laughs) and she thinks that Porter's not there. Like, he's not there when she comes back, and they're supposed to get ready to go. And she's thinking, oh, he's not going to be here. Yeah. I'm moving into a new phase of things here. Like, he's leaving me. I get some of this, probably. (laughs) Yeah. And then he walks in. He walks in. That's right. Yeah. So... Which is a surprise, actually, when he walks yeah. in, I think, because we're, he still seems to be, like, one of the likely suspects. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But when they get to the dinner dance, to, I mean, at least from Debbie's perspective, it's clear that it's Brad. You know, she's trying to handle things gracefully, but she's clearly devastated. Yeah, he can't go with her. Yeah. She decides to go anyway. She wears the stupid Addie Ross dress yeah. that he made her buy. Yeah. It's pretty dressed. Even though he's not with her, she yeah. goes out with the other couples and sits there and tries to make the best of it, sort of. She doesn't drink, noticeably. They off, They try to get her to drink. <laughs> she to won't drink up. anything, yeah. And I think she made a good choice <laughs> because she does not snip off any parts of her dress. Yeah. She doesn't slur. She doesn't make a scene. Yeah. She's very elegant <laughs> and controlled. And she almost makes it through. Yeah. So I think, like... I think what finally sets her off is that um, Porter is going off about Laura May dancing with some, like, bookie that her mom gambles with. <laughs> and um, and I think that Debbie is just like, don't you know that Laura May loves you to pieces, you know, and she just can't take it anymore because, you know, her husband's not there, but, you know... Um, so they finally explain to Porter, like, what's going on. Like, Addie Ross sent this letter. Um. She sent this letter saying that she ran off with one of you? Yeah. Obviously, it's, clearly it's Brad, Brad. You know. And I and can't she's, handle she's this anymore. Devastated. She gets up to leave. Like, 
And so he's like, come back. And he explains that, in fact, that he was the one that had run off with Addy Ross, but then he had changed his mind. So in his mind, he thinks that he's given Laura May the ammunition she needs in order to divorce him and, you know, get as much money as she wants out of him, you know. Well, he makes two sacrifices here, because on the one hand, he puts... Debbie out of her misery yeah. by telling her right now instead yeah. of her let go home and wonder all night long about this until yeah. she eventually hears from Brad again. No, he puts it to rest. Like, it's not Brad. You don't have to worry about that. You still have him. Yeah. It was me all along. So he makes sure she's okay. And then he also, by making this admission, knows that he's giving Laura May the ammunition to... Well, and, and they acknowledge that, like, Rita and, and Kirk Douglas are like, you know, she would have found out in the morning, you didn't have to say that. And he was like, I didn't didn't want her to worry all night, you yeah. know, about that. Um, and then then he looks at Laura May like, you know, you can divorce me now kind He's of like, thing. He's like, now I've admitted what yeah. I did. You have cause, you know. And she's like, I didn't hear anything. She's like, what did you say? Yeah, I, didn't I didn't hear, hear a anything. thing. Yeah. <laughs> And so I guess the implication is that um, they're finally able to find a way to show each other that they care about each other more than just more than just for financial and and, and then physical have, reasons. You have some kind of last line of mm-hmm. of uh, Addie Ross narration with yeah. that cup falling down and yeah, shattering. The Marti- uh, yeah, there's like a champagne glass. I don't on know the what table. she says, but it's she kind says, of says hi ho or something yeah, it's like sort that. Sort of to the effect of oh well then you yeah. know <laughs> never mind <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Hi ho! <laughs> I want to see what Addie Ross is up to now. We don't get to know. <laughs> so yeah, we never got to see Addie Ross. She moved out. She moved to the city or something. But the brilliant thing about Addie Ross is none of this is about <laughs> Addie Ross. No. <laughs> Addie Ross isn't the problem in these no. in these marriages. Yeah. But she's like uh, I don't know. I don't even think she's like a crucible or or something. I don't know. I don't know what she is. She's she a rep- symbol. She's a symbol. She's <laughs> Patty Ross is a symbol. She represents something. Yeah. She represents the ideal. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly what she represents in she, this case. And something about like there's a problem in this marriage. Everything would have been fine were you with Addie Ross instead. Yeah. Like she's the one that you will always wonder about, yeah. and that represents the better alternative to this. Uh, uncertain imperfect marriage that we're actually in so i mean i guess like if you think it back like the ones that it makes more sense that she would be off with either brad or porter because they kind of idolize her in a different way i don't think it's ever clear that kirk douglas's character cares like heads or tails for Addie ross other than like as friends you know to me like there's not as much there for him to no, I guess what's implied maybe is a kind of intimacy that or friendship yeah. that he doesn't seem to have with Rita, at least in that that day on the, in yeah. that day. The fact that she remembered his birthday, she got him something that is really dear to his heart yeah. and that he really loves, and also the fact that he's shared with her, she knows about the twelfth night yeah. play that he's going to direct, and Rita doesn't. Um, I think that's the insecure thing yeah. for Rita is like she knows she probably feels like she knows him better like yeah. you're closer to her it's not true yeah she's a friend 
<laughs> but I get more with him that she's a friend. Yeah, exactly. Whether or not it feels... I mean, it's it definitely amplified and magnified into another thing for Rita. But I don't... I never get the sense that he's would be tempted by yeah. her. Like, again, that relationship seems mostly okay yeah. to me. It does, yeah. They, and it's they the one that's at the heart. It's the middle one. Yeah, it's the middle one. And it's the, the first one and the third one that are more problematic. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess the whole dinner party with the... the radio people coming over is a pretty good set piece. It's a good sequence, but there just seems to be so much more weight in the one that actually does end up being the marriage. That's the most at risk and on the rocks and the one where he actually did leave her and come back. Well, that one started under, under Lorme and Porter's relationship started out under, you know, transactional, purely transactional terms. You know, they weren't ever able to be emotionally vulnerable with each other at all, you know? So it seems to get the most screen time. I'm not sure if it actually gets more screen time than the middle one with George and Rita, but I don't know. It's definitely worth I think there are more scenes because yeah. we get all the background of, like, Laura May and her sister and her aunt and, I mean, Sadie and um, her mom. I really so. like the revelation at that dinner that at the club, you know, yeah. with the way that Porter kind of brings everything out and confesses. Yeah. I think that's done really well. And I didn't... Yes, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't really know what was going to happen. Yeah. And I definitely didn't remember having seen it before. <laughs> I did feel pretty sure that the Brad thing was a red herring. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the first one we have. Because immediately he had an excuse for being in the city for work, you know, like and right off the bat. And they took great pains to set up that he probably wasn't going to come back. I think they did set up that the, um, that um, Rita had seen Porter at the train station when she went to drop off some copy at oh, some point. Yeah. I didn't. It, it's just like a throwaway line, but yeah. she was like, "Where it's was there. Porter off to?" They do. Today? Set, they do they plant did mention that. something like that. So I think at that point, that's early on, and I'm still trying to remember who all the characters are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so well, I don't know. What do you think about this? Like tidy resolution at the end with the happy ending and and the you know especially the resolution between porter and laura may is that too neat in a way or is it does does it satisfying i i don't know this movie to me i really enjoyed it i think it's really cleverly written um you know it leaves you guessing till the end in a way that um like a lot of places a lot of things i don't think it and the reason it does that i don't think it drops as many clues as like some things would you know so there generally is sort of the surprise when there's this like bait and switch at the end, you know. Um, although, I mean, I guess you could, once you get to the point of like things starting to be revealed, you know, you would think, oh, okay, well, that, that answer came a little bit too easily, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that uh, the third couple wasn't involved in some way, so... Um, I think that it's set up really well that Porter feels so upset about their marriage that he w- that it definitely feels in character and that he is at the point where he would just say fuck it this yeah. is what the deal is and confess everything like he does it's yeah it's very well built up yeah it's well motivated is what i'm well, trying to say and neither of them seem to have like any kind of they don't um keep their feelings private exactly you know throughout the film they kind of have not <laughs> i'm surprised to hear debbie or whomever said like don't you know how crazy she is about you and how much she loves you? Because yeah. you don't nec- you don't really see that. Yeah. That has to be outside of the movie in the yeah. bounds of 
and and within the confines of the friendship that those women have because yeah. I don't see we don't really see well it kind of reminds me like I'm I hopefully we've moved emotionally towards away from relationships like this but the sort of like red and scarlet of it all you know where like you know they're clearly crazy about each other but neither of them can admit it you know kind of thing or yeah or well actually it's he's he's crazy about her but she you know especially if you've read the book scarlet was very much about transactional marriage Mm -hmm. throughout the entire book Mm -hmm. you know it was all about what marriage could bring her which like given the circumstances having lost everything um (laughs) you could see why you might uh, or you know in the case of laura may not having anything you know how how it might be an opportunity to move up in the world or gain back what you lost, depending on the circumstance. But then like the men are left feeling like, or in, in these cases are, are left feeling like all they're bringing to the table. All the only interest that they have is their, is their money, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's also like other things like safety and, and, you know, not being, you know, beaten or, <laughs> you know, there's other things too, you know, um, you know, in addition to, to any like emotional feelings that there might be, but I don't remember where I was going with this, but anyway, I feel like there's a lot of, there's a se- sort of sense of that sort of thing mm-hmm. in there. Like, I don't know, like you're not supposed to admit that that's like maybe some, some reason why someone might get married would be for the financial security of things, yeah. you know. I like what you were saying earlier on about how the movie gives you these three different images of the role of women at this time. And I love ones that. that you didn't necessarily see in a lot of other movies. Yeah. I don't think you see a lot of like the George and Rita story with the woman being the breadwinner. Yeah. And the man feel like I feel like that story would normally be told in a much more amplified, dramatic way where it's like the thing that drives them apart. Well, it's it's interesting because, like, the way, like, women were able to work after the war in ways mm-hmm. that they hadn't been able to. And, like, true, a lot of women, after the factories closed, after the munitions factories closed, they went back to housekeeping, many of mm-hmm. them. But there were a lot of women that, like, saw these opportunities that they didn't see before. Um, or, you know... Why not do both? Yeah. Why not have a family why, why and continue have a family working? And, do th- and, yeah. and do that, you know, you know, especially, I guess, in the case of Rita, if you if you can have a housekeeper, you can also, you know, stay up all night and write uh, radio dramas, you know, or radio advertising. I forget what she's... I think she's writing advertising is what she's doing. Yeah, I'm not sure. I couldn't... I wasn't sure if she was writing the ads or the stupid soap operas. Yeah. But it's very interesting because, like... At the state they are in their relationships, Brad and Debbie don't have children yet. The only mm-hmm. people who have children at this point are uh, Rita and and Kirk Douglas. Oh, God, you're right. They do they have, have kids. I forgot. Yeah, they they have the they ha- they mentioned having a plan for the kids to be occupied that night. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, they put them to bed early at some point. And then Laura May and Porter don't have kids at this point either, yeah. which is it's interesting. Um Ooh, and Kirk Douglas says he's going to go put them to bed, too, yeah. which is not a, also not a thing you see a lot in the old yeah. movies. <laughs> they have a very modern marriage. Yeah, they for do. Them. Um, and then, you know, Debbie is just, she's been working in the Navy, you know, for 
for the, I mean, the whole of the war, most we likely. We talk about it a lot, but she also feels insecure about the fact that she comes from the country yeah. and that she grew up on a farm and like out in the middle of nowhere and basically had no opportunities outside of the house until she did decide to enlist. Yeah. So and then part she, of her she insecurity. Got to see the world. She learned so yeah. many new things. She met this new guy, you know. But she's never really felt okay about her background. Yeah. Now that she feels like she's expected to move in a different circle. I don't find the rest of them all terribly, terribly sophisticated, but I think yeah. probably just the lifestyle of the dinner parties and the going out to the club is, is yeah. different for her. So, I mean, and that reflects sort of the urbanization of the U.S. following World War II. We, that's when you really got to see people starting to move. And, you know, part of that is the automation that came out of the war that we were able to, like, move from, you know, swords to plowshares kind of let's turn this technology that we developed for the war into how can we, you know, <laughs> have better tractors and, and everything. So then you automate the food industry so not as many people have to live in the country anymore. So more people move to the city. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting. It reflects that sort of transitional time that the U.S. is in during this, this time. And then, of course, like women moving into the workforce um, and contributing to, you know, I mean, it's funny because she's not contributing creatively, which is often what we think of women in. Mm -hmm. But she's con uh, like if she's writing commercials, which I think she is, then she's, I mean, like strictly, you know, contributing in the sense of like, you know, Mad Men kind mm -hmm. of. It's creative, but it's capitalism, you know. Right. And then we have Laura May, who's sort of, you know, using. Well, and actually her husband, who's who's sort of like made, I, I assume that he's like a second generation, like his, his father would have been an immigrant. Yeah, probably. I would guess from Italy, but, and he's, they came over, they were able to build up enough capital so he could start this department store. And so now that they're, um, he's made some amount of wealth in sort of like a local mm -hmm. department store sort of environ and he's like on his way up you mm -hmm. know to expand or be bought out or whatever mm -hmm. you know um so it feels like a very much that sort of transitional time like economically and socially in the so historically it's quite an interesting snapshot yeah it of, is of mid-century yeah <laughs> post-war america well, and also, I mean, like, so, and then, you know, Laura May's family is Irish. Oh, there's a great line about um, um, how his wife has is an old Spanish family by the name of Finney. Um. Yeah, the, the Irish name of Finney. <laughs> um, so, I mean, like, it's kind of that sort of, you know, the the beginning of, of you know, mixing of immigrants in the U.S. and... And sort of the U.S. sort of evolving its, like, for better or for worse, its sort of identity in the post-world world, you know, um, which, like, oddly, people have attached themselves and will not let go mm -hmm. um, to this uh, thing that was only <laughs> briefly a real thing and then went away very quickly. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, I, I think it's an interesting movie for that. But I also like that that it sort of explores all the different ways that... But none of these women, maybe except for Debbie, seem like they're the traditional sort of housewife kind of thing, mm -mm. you know? Nobody's Mrs. Cleaver yeah. or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate getting to see these different yeah. roles and views of domesticity. And then, you know, still, I mean, like, still, the, I guess the most, the evil character is the divorced, the divorced woman, the evil divorced woman, you know, she, the sophisticated divorcee, you know, so. 
the shadowy disembodied <laughs> figure on the outside, the, the agent of chaos. How weird is it though, that you have this figure narrating, narrating the movie. And again, like I keep joking that the omniscient Addie Ross, who's <laughs> like setting up and introducing on the voiceover scenes that she's not present for. It's a strange device. No, it seems more literary, I guess, in a way like this, the narrator of the story is somebody who's not actually a participant in it. No, in a direct way. <laughs> it's weird. I can't think of any other films like that off the bat. Yes. Yeah. I can't think <laughs> of any either. Well, the other film that I was thinking about showing you, which I think you were up for, was another Linda Darnell movie, um, which came out the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, Preston Sturge's film with Rex Harrison and Linda Darnell. Unfaithfully um, Yours. Unfaithfully Yours. Which also has an odd, like, three-part dream sequence section in it. Um, so these films oh, are very Apparently they were doing mind. these experiments with film narrative yeah. uh, back then. Which, I mean, like, I think has been, like, a lot of our modern films make use of flashback to, you know, sometimes better success than others, you know. Mm-hmm. Um I try very hard not to talk about the the Greta Gerwig adaptation of Little Women, but I can't think of very many examples that did it so well as that mm-hmm. film did. You know, um, I know that I talk about it quite a bit because I just i th- I think it was highly successful in the way that it does flashbacks. You know. Mm-hmm. So unfaithfully years is that the next Linda Darnell movie? Uh, I don't know if it's only Linda Darnell. Only Linda Darnell or Rex Harrison films from here on out. We'll do no, Dr. Doolittle. You started off the conversation saying this was the one that introduced you to Linda Darnell and you wanted to see more of her movies. Yeah. Do, and uh, I didn't end up seeing my, many more than that. Okay. You know. <laughs> so Unfaithfully Yours, the Preston Sturges movies, is, yeah. is another one to check out. Well, and that out. one is interesting because it is it is on Criterion, but it was never part of the sort of like Preston Sturges box sets that came out that had... Yeah. Um, um, the Preston Sturges movies I can't think of. Sullivan's Travels yeah. and um, The Lady Eve. The Lady Eve. Yeah, those are my two favorites. Yeah. Yeah, I have that box set. <laughs> it's on the shelf somewhere. So, we should pull that out every once in a while. <laughs> so I will say, like, and one of the things Mankiewicz is, I mean, particularly in All About Eve, but this film as well, like, the dialogue is very good. Like, it's snappy and entertaining and, like, feels true to... There's, like, a real sense of character about each of them. Yeah, it's not like everybody talks the same. Yeah. It's, like, it's a sophisticated uh, way of each of them expressing their personality and their worldview. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. So, I mean, like, if you you enjoy screenplays with very good dialogue, I think that this... This one has that. The jokes that they make between, uh, you know, Laura May's family is mm-hmm. just, they're very good. You know, they're just like, well, I mean, and like I said, Th- Thelma Rita, all her little asides, you know, when she's like judging Rita for her, you know. Um, I always wonder know, if people <laughs> cast Thelma Ritter and then write for her or, yeah. or, or where what it is, because she always plays that similar yeah. character. She's like, they always give her that barbed, yeah. sort of sarcastic commentary on what's happening. Yeah, she's, she often plays kind of a domestic or mm. or somebody a little bit lower down the totem pole who's commenting on the thing that's yeah. going on. It, 
She's amazing. Well, I always wonder, because I have, an, like, an obsession with, like, a side obsession with, like, character actors. I just mm-hmm. really enjoy them, you know, because their role isn't to carry the story. They're just there to provide commentary and to add layers and, you know, and so, like, there's so many great character actors that, you know, exist and you see them in all the films because they're there and they add all this depth, you know, uh, Thelma Ritter's one of them, like Susie Kurtz, I always talk about, uh, there's, I can't remember her Susie name. Susie Kurtz. Susie Kurtz. I love her so much. Um, I can't rem- remember, um, there's another one that I really like. Um, anyway, I just think that they add such, like, depth to mm-hmm. films that, like, you could just have someone come in and be a domestic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you would just have this sort of, like, human body moving around in the scene, but mm-hmm. not add anything to yeah. it, other than texture, I guess. Yeah. But then you ha- when you have this whole other personality for them to react against, it makes things more meaningful, and you get to see how outsiders would feel about this yeah. particular thing, so... Um, well, I really liked um, Paul Douglas as Porter in yeah. this movie. And the movie I want to show you sometime is the Fritz Lang sort of... It's not really... I guess it's kind of noir. I think it's mm-hmm. on my one of my noir box sets. But it's just kind of a potboiler drama sort of thing. Clash by Night. And it's um, Paul Douglas and Robert Ryan, who's yeah. just like one of my favorite actors. And Barbara Stanwyck. And it's the three of them just crackling on screen. It's yeah. so good. And it's black and white. It's in the it's in the forties or early fifties. Um when Fritz Lang was making film noir over here. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any uh final thoughts on uh the proceedings of uh the week with uh a letter to three wives? I don't know. I, I just like for me, oddly what sticks Sticks in my mind, other than, like, this, the structure and and the fantastic dialogue is the, like, odd transitions for the flashbacks. And mm-hmm. I really, like, appreciate that they were taking those kind of chances with that sort of thing, you know. I just remember looking at you and saying, what is happening? What is happening you know, here? Because you've got yeah. the, the last one we didn't talk about was the water dropping from a faucet or something yeah. with um, the... Um, Laura May's voice saying, do I really have everything I want? Or something yeah. like that. It's like, bloop, bloop, That's my bloop. favorite transition is the drop, the dripping water one. Um, <laughs> it just sounds like yeah. a, wa- a faucet, faucet water talking. Yeah. Like it's, <laughs> it's synthesized in a very weird way. I've never seen anything like that. So I, I don't know. I, that always stuck with me. I just think it's an interesting way to move into... And, uh, boy, you could even write a thesis on all the different ways that people trans, trans you know... Mm-hmm. transfer into a, you know, into a dream sequence or a fantasy sequence. How are flashbacks introduced? Yeah. yeah we don't have the wavy Brady so, Bunch so thing. It's like, I was thinking, like, the, the the ones that they like to do now is, like, start in the middle of one. Yeah. And then you're trying to figure, like, the rules of your normal show are broken, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, so you end up with this very unmourned feeling. They tend to use that more for dream sequences than, yeah. like, fantasy sequences, but, um... <laughs> it was like the movie we watched the other day where, um... The last one that I did, uh, Phantasm, where yeah. it wasn't clear. It, like, it's important to make those transitions clear, because, like... 
you don't know if you're, if you do it wrong, then you don't know if you're like experiencing a fantasy within the same scene or whether you've cut to the next scene. And so there was that scene in... Or if it's a flashback. Yeah. (laughs) In Phantasm where he's at the fortune tellers. Yeah. And like he's actually having a flashback where he's like explaining to him what happened to him but or something. But a flashback to a scene we already saw yeah, like five minutes before. Very weird. It was very weird. You don't usually <laughs> flash back to something you've just seen. And because it did that and then when they cut to the next thing which was indeed like supposed to be a fantasy or something like that mm-hmm. or a, um, it wasn't clear whether we had just moved on to the next scene or whether they were actually telling his fortune or what the deal was. So right. that kind of transition is important. <laughs> um, more important than you would think. Um, you know, you can't just cut I think to Joseph the next Megwitz scene. I had a little more experience by this yeah. point than the director of Phantasm had by yeah, the time he made probably. this movie. Just gonna say, <laughs> get, just a guess. All right. I think that's all. Well, that's what we have for you this week. Thank you for listening. Um, hit uh, iTunes or your podcast app and give us a review or a star rating so other people can find us. Tell your friends. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with my next choice. And I haven't decided if I'm still going to pretend we're in the creepy season. You obviously went veered away from uh, the horror movies and the creepy you stuff. You didn't think but... that was a horror film? Oh, was that a horror film? Is, is uh, Why didn't Brad go fishing? Well, that's kind of creepy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time. George. Bye. <laughs>